Let's see what the stew has for us today. Welcome to the Gnomecast, a Gnome Stew's tabletop gaming advice podcast. Here we talk with the other gnomes about gaming things to avoid becoming part of the stew, so I guess we'd better be good. This episode is brought to you by awesome Patreon backers like the Bodacious Block Party Podcast Network, the magnificent OG gnome Martin Ralia, and the marvelously meek Barbarian. Today we have myself, Ange, along with Senda and Dee, and we're going to talk about running a game without the books. You know, running with, uh, with minimal source materials. To some people, I know this is probably like jumping out of a plane without a parachute, but all three of your hosts have at least kind of sort of done this thing, so we're going to talk about it. Before we dive into that topic, though, let's ask our get-to-know-a-gnome question. What is your favorite or most prized gaming book that's on your shelf and why? Dee, I'm going to start with you. Okay, I've got this book from, I think it's just around when quote-unquote D&D Next was coming out. It's called Murder in Baldur's Gate. It was so early, it still has 3.5, 4E, and D&D Next statistics all in one book. <laughs> it has a complete covering of what Baldur's Gate works, of how it works, the kind of culture it has, the people. And if you look online, it's anywhere from 175 to $365. You wow. can't find it anymore. Wow. Yeah, that must have definitely come out at that, that in very the, the... in-between mm-hmm. stage. <laughs> there, there was definitely a period of time where it seemed like it was possible that D&D might not survive. My favorite part about this book is that it is the best, worst thing I think D&D has ever come out with. Because, <laughs> okay, so the game works at, with 12 stages and three main faction heads you can do a job from one or two of them at most and at every stage uh consequences pop up for the uh for the faction heads that you don't complete the missions of so stage one uh people can no longer wear red clothes okay simple say by stage two or four Trash pickup no longer happens, so the gar- uh, so the streets become covered in garbage. By stage <laughs> six, explosions start happening at certain bakeries around the town. Essentially, every stage you can only cover like one or two, and everything else happens. Wow! It, by the time you hit stage eleven or twelve, the city is in massive chaos. That's an entirely your fault. Yeah, and there's <laughs> nothing you really could have done about it. You can't. You can't cover everything. Yeah, that's that's horrifying <laughs> just my I, my players whenever Baldur's Gate comes up they are terrified and like I, I show I show them the return from Avernus which starts in Baldur's Gate and it's like no god please no <laughs> how about you Senda what's on your shelf okay I'm gonna cheat and list two one of them is actually on my shelf and one of them is not. But the other one, I think, might be my absolute favorite. So I have this copy of uh, Royal Blood from when Grant Howitt just had released it in PDF that I printed out and bound myself because I was Ooh. very bored one day. So I made the cover <laughs> and also, like, learned bookbinding. That was cool. I, I, I love that you just, <laughs> you, just, you just did it. You just decided yeah, just, to learn how to do it. It's lovely, right? <laughs> it is. No, but no, our... our our listeners can't see this, but it is this beautiful, like, magazine-sized... Uh... Yeah, it's eight and a half by 11, 
and it's got like the the crown with the eye in it that's repeated in all of the art um, inside uh, with great frequency. And it's very pretty and blue. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So so that's that's probably the favorite one that's actually on my shelf. But I have to call out what I think is really my favorite, which is um, so Quincy, the gentleman who ran the Tales from the Loop game that Wen and I have both written as so many articles about. Um, Quincy is awesome. If you get a chance to game with him, game with him. Real good. Um, and uh, so, but what what he did is we actually in each of in in um, Tales from the Loop and then in Things from the Flood and then most recently in um, the adventure book that they did. What is it like? Something about time. Out of time. Out of time. So in each of those books, we signed them like they were yearbooks. Oh. Um, so we actually, um, in Things from the Flood, we actually signed the, the front of the book as if it was before the adventure, and we signed the back of the book as if it was after the adventure, like the campaign that we played. And so like in the front of the book, I'm all like, I'm so happy. Please show up to my wedding. I can't wait to see you. And in the back of the book, I'm like, it's been really complicated. Sorry about the wedding, like all of this stuff. Right? Like, and, and like the guy that was my fiance at the at the front was like, I can't wait to meet you. It's so nice to meet Stacy's friends. And then in the back of the book, he's like, My corporation is watching you. Like <laughs> So I think that that's actually my favorite because each one of those books has like this documentation yearbook style thing happening. Uh, which was really amazing. So I will I'm just I, I'll call those out too. Anyway, Ange, what's, what's your favorite book on your yeah, shelf? Ange. <laughs> my favorite book on my shelf is actually my first edition Shadowrun book. I got this book in the early, you know, the late 80s when at the time my only gaming exposure had been D&D and the Shadowrun book kind of ended up in my lap and the art in it just caught my imagination and it's like, wait, there's more than just D&D out there what? and it's the idea that like like I never really got to play that much Shadowrun and uh, honestly nowadays as much as I love the, the setting and the ideas in Shadowrun I'm not, I I'm not interested in the mechanics of Shadowrun yeah um, <laughs> but that that book kind of is what opened the door to say there's more you know, look look over the next hill because there's so much more out there. And, you know, when I started playing, all there was was D&D because that's all the people I was playing with really wanted to play. We talked about playing Shadowrun, but never actually did anything with that. It wasn't until, uh, like, 1989 when I was in college and fell in with a different group of gamers that I started playing things that weren't D&D. And... You know, it opened up by it opened up the the realms of possibility, and that Shadowrun book kind of represents that. You know, as I look at the you know kind of eclectic collection of genres that sits on my shelf right now. So let's get into our main topic. As we talked about, our main topic today is running a game without access to some or all of the source material. In role-playing games, that usually means the books, and all three of us here have done this and thought it would be a fun topic to cover, going over the pros and cons of running a game with minimal source material. Oh, uh, man. Yeah. This is, it's, it's actually something that delights me quite a bit, because I still have this funny story where Andy, who is my co-host on She's a Super Geek, did not know at the time that I had never read 
the fourth edition D&D books, but I was running a fourth edition campaign at the time, and I still have never read the books. <laughs> you know, and I know there's, I, I, I will preface this with, with, I guess, a content warning of sorts. I know there's a lot of gamers out there. This is absolutely going to horrify, <laughs> but it's, hey, you can do it. We're going to talk about this it. This is that secret behind the screen moment where as a GM, you get away with stuff and you get away with it both by communicating with your players and being like, oh, I don't know that as well as you. Cool. Tell me how it works. And Pull by just the curtain. waving your magic hands and being like, I'm telling a cool <laughs> story. So like, cool story, bro. Like, why do you care if I know the mechanics as well as you do? Whatever. We'll make it work. <laughs> so we we know that Senda's Senda's foray into running without without the books is is fourth edition. What was yours, Dee's? I don't even own them. It was fifth edition. Yeah, very honestly, it's just like it's how I met my group of friends just two years ago. So I was running games for a local store. The local store had expected me to play at, like to be you know I guess knowledgeable about five e, but. I didn't have the PHP. I didn't have the Mont Manual. I I didn't have the DM uh, DM. I still have none of the books. And I ran a campaign like three years. Um, <laughs> and I and honestly, I didn't even know how to play the game at all. I I've just been I've been playing my entire I've been running games my entire life. I ran with that, and I had I did have one book. It was Horror of the Dragon Queen that I got from an ex while we were dating, and then I never returned when we broke up. <laughs> <laughs> and he got over it. Well, no, I don't know if he ever got over it because um I haven't seen him since then. But I I kind of guessed what a lot of the rules were. I made a lot of quote unquote like you know DM calls, and the thing is. There's a lot of people eager to play 5e, like a lot of people. So, oh yeah. When, so a bunch of them came to the thing with all three books, even though they were just players, and every once in a while I'll be like, "Hey, I I can't I don't have the time for this. Can you look up what this rule is?" <laughs> yeah. I was able to trick them for 5 months until uh, one person just like looked at me and was like, "Do you do you know how to play?" <laughs> and I'm like all about that <laughs> that's so Andy uh, the really funny thing about my game is like I never pretended I never ever pretended that I knew how fourth edition worked in any way shape or form right like I had just finished playing a previous campaign with these people in which I had said, hey I played a lot of d20 and I'm super familiar with 335 and Pathfinder so I figure I can probably pick this up pretty quickly, but I've never played 4th edition. And they were like, okay, cool. And I played that with them, and my knowledge level did not change between that campaign and me running a campaign. Oh but God. they thought that it did for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> like We've learned today, I'm a liar and Senda is not. <laughs> well, I didn't, I, I guess I lied by omission, because like <laughs> I assumed that they knew that I didn't know the game. But then like, Six months after we finished playing it, or maybe a year or something, I'm sitting there talking to Andy and we actually have this recorded. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I still have never read the fourth edition books. And she was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> and 
And I was like, did you think I had read those? And she was like, I kept wondering why you were asking me so many rules questions. <laughs> I was like, oh, I didn't read those books. Yeah. <laughs> I ran, uh, in 2011, I decided I wanted to run an Eberron campaign. But I had no desire to run it in 3.5. Yeah. Or 4th edition. Because I just was kind of over the two of those. And at the time, the the kind of the the presumed system of choice was Pathfinder. I didn't own any of the Pathfinder books. Yeah. <laughs> I, you know, I did my session set up going to the Pathfinder PRD, uh, which is, you know, giving Paizo all the credit. The PRD is is really a really good source for information on the game. Yeah. But I spent far more time combing through my actual Eberron books, yeah. which mm-hmm. didn't have any of the system information I needed, but had all of the setting information I needed. I would comb through those things. My books still all have the little the little colored tags you can put on pages so you can... I, I forget what they're called. I have them sitting yeah, right tab. next to me. Little sticky things. Tabs, yeah. yeah. Tabs, the little colored tabs. My books are full of these little colored tabs on things I would note. You know, that, oh, this is an interesting, because it was the setting that was what was, what I needed, what I felt like I needed to be a better, better knowledge, you know, I needed to be more knowledgeable about that than the system. The system will take care of itself. <laughs> I Can I point out what's really interesting, and I think also kind of speaks to this experience, is that we're all talking about D20 games that we ended up doing this uh-huh. with, right? So there is a thing where, like, none of us were like, I've never played anything like this game before, ever. Let's just see what happens. No, like, we all had a basic understanding of, like, you roll a die, you add a modifier, and I've played things like this before. So, like, I don't know the super specific rules of this specific one, but, like, Mm -hmm. if you've played 3-5, I don't think that Pathfinder is a huge leap, right? No, it's not. Like... Fourth edition is a weird thing because in fourth edition, all the classes play like uh, they all play like magic users. Right. Which was the thing that I didn't enjoy about playing fourth edition because I never played magic users because I didn't like them. Um, (laughs) They all play like video game characters. Well, I mean, that's it, really. But and, and, and it was it's really funny that I ended up running that game because I had never read the books out of some like self righteous sense of like. I don't know, not liking the video game feel of fourth edition. Like <laughs> mm-hmm. I literally went to Pathfinder and like thumbed my nose at it and then ended up running it and just like, but still never read the books. Right. Like, so it was weird. But, but the thing is that like, it's still a D20 system, right? Like I, I, I can still kind of run that without having to like grok something new. Like I still know that I'm mm-hmm. going to tell you, okay, I want you to do a check for me. And then if I don't know what the name of the skill is, that's fine. I'm like, okay, cool, roll for me. And they're like, cool, what should I roll? I'm like, I don't know, what do you think? Right? <laughs> Tell me which skill you think it is. <laughs> and, and and I still know the basics of like, you know, you're going to roll a d20, you're going to add a modifier, you know, blah, 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 right? And so then, and, and, and it's so it's in the details that a lot of that stuff changes because like, just to use my favorite example, because I always used to play rogues all the time, right? The way that flanking works as you progress through editions of D&D and Pathfinder is massively different and whether or not you can do sneak attacks on undead, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Like these are the tiny little very specific things that change massively as you move through books. But like Mm -hmm. as a GM running it, I don't necessarily need to know that as long as my players know it. Right. Like as long as you, the player know how that mechanic works for your character, I don't have to know it. (laughs) So like branching off of that, 
like a lot of people tend to look at quote unquote rules lawyers very negatively. Yeah. But they're I I one of my one of the things I like to carry with me is delegation and telling player uh, getting everyone to like help run the game, getting some people to run initiative, getting some people to change the music. I use GMs in order to like help describe the area if I don't have an idea for it. So rules lawyers are r- perfect for running a game, especially if you don't know how to, you know, well, run it. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's important to recognize what type of rules lawyer you might have at the table. Yeah. Yeah. Because I have rules lawyers that I absolutely will turn to and be like, how does this work? Mm-hmm. And they are usually, the, the, the rules lawyers I love are the ones who know the system, but enjoy the game enough that they're not going to freak out when you don't do things exactly as the rules say. Right. Those are the rules lawyers I enjoy because they're an absolutely, you're, you're right, they are absolutely a fantastic resource at the table. It's like, I have no idea how this is supposed to work. Tell me how this is supposed to work. And then we, we do it. The rules lawyers I don't like are the ones who, you know, they either are obnoxious to the people that don't know the rules and make the game less fun for everyone or yeah. they manipulate the game with their rules knowledge in their favor. I've had I've had a couple of those that I, I don't enjoy playing with anymore because they'll they'll proclaim their rules mastery and you go back later and look it up and like they were deliberately misinterpreting the rules to benefit mm-hmm. their character. Those are the people I, I tend to like you got you got to know what type of rules lawyer you've got at the table with. You. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, it's still it's still got to be part of the team, right? But but that's yeah. But that is also how how I was literally using Andy because fourth edition was her first edition. She knew that game inside and out, right? Mm-hmm. And so this is why it was hilarious to me that I was like, you guys didn't know I didn't know the rules. Like literally every time we came to a rules thing, I was like, cool. How does that work? Every time I did, I wasn't so, even pretending. <laughs> several years ago. This is this is probably I want to say it was 2013. It might have been 2012. I got it into my head that I wanted to run Monster of the Week, and I, I signed up to run Monster of the Week as a con game at a local con. And I had like played maybe one or two Powered by the Apocalypse games. I just I love the concept of Monster of the Week. You know, it's your Buffy the Vampire Slayer. It's your Supernatural. It's your X Files. I love that concept. And at the time, the the current book was not out. There was just the original PDF, which was not very well put together. And I kind of skimmed it, and I looked at the playbooks, and I showed up to that con game having absolutely no idea what I was doing. Absolutely no idea. Power by Apocalypse is, like, pretty clear. <laughs> I ran my very first Powered by the Apocalypse game on air. She's a super geek, Ooh. and I hadn't. <laughs> Which one? It was uh, it was heroin, and I had not <laughs> completely grokked how moves and stuff worked. <laughs> and I'm so like, I know I made a cool story, but like I'm scared to listen back to that because I don't know how well we actually played the game. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. But we had fun doing it. And I love that game now. Like, I've run it a bunch more times, and now I get it. But, you know, whatever. <laughs> yeah, I had three players. We had one make a fae-based werewolf monstrous character, and somebody else made the priest that had raised her. 
and the uh, the third player made the uh, the representative from the the government organization that was monitoring both of them. And then the three of them had to deal with the fact that her mother decided to come back for her. Oh boy! <laughs> you know, so, so it that was sounds a great, great, yeah, great game. The, the rules were like, no, no, the rules were not there, and you know, but everyone had a great time at the table. Yeah, and there's a certain amount of like acknowledging that, and it, we should, I should say before I say this, right? Like, it depends on what the people at your table at, like, what they derive fun from. If they de- derive exactly. fun from mechanical mastery, this is probably not going to work for them. If they derive fun from story, which tends to be my personal preference right right now for me, it hasn't always been, but it is right now, then, you know, by prioritizing the story, it matters to me a lot less if we get the rules right. It matters to me a lot less if we engage them at all. Like, they're there to support us when we need them, and we should do them as right as we can. But, you know, I'm here for the I'm here for the story, right? I'm here for these characters. I think you hit upon a really good point. You need to know your audience. Yeah. Uh-huh. If, you're, if you're running for a bunch of people who have been playing that particular system for a very long time and are very well-versed in the mechanics... You need to make sure you need to understand whether or not you're going to be able to get away with not knowing the mechanics and still running a game that they're going to enjoy. On the other hand, if you're running for a bunch of new folks who wandered into the game store because they've been listening to or watching Critical Role and really (laughs) want to try D&D, you can simplify those rules down to the core mechanics and give them that taste of the game that's going to hook them. You know, they don't necessarily need to know that that flanking does not work the same way in 5th edition that it did right. in the previous editions. <laughs> it, and doesn't, now, it doesn't exist. It's so confusing, Ange. Why would they do that to me? It exists. It just doesn't. Just it doesn't matter for anybody except the rogues. I don't think it even matters for rogues the same way anymore. But see, now I'm showing my lack of rules mastery of 5e because honestly, <laughs> I can't remember. <laughs> There's like an optional rule, like yeah, where it's like, I think where I can give advantage, but then that ruins the game balance. It ruins the game balance. Yeah, I'm like, it's something they definitely, they definitely didn't make it because it used to be that as a rogue, the only freaking reliable way to get sneak attack every round was to be like, I'm flanking. So I perfected the art of flanking in every situation. <laughs> I remember being so mad at a GM because he refused to run 3.5 with minis. But Ugh. he also wouldn't let me get into flanking position with no, my No, see, that's not cool. If you're not gonna, if you're not gonna be able to be like, I'm gonna flank him from here, then you have to play with minis. So as a player, you can be like, see the line through the center of the creature. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> yep, can't have it both ways. I actually like what they've done with fifth edition. I think they did a good job. I, I agree, but like, I haven't, it's, it's, I haven't actually I, played a ton of it. I completely understand your frustration. <laughs> It's, it's, I want my backstab damage. Right. Well, but there's other ways you get it and it's easier or something. I don't know. But I think it's, it's like if they're just as engaged. As long as someone is next to the person that you're attacking. Right. In anything, there's no lines. It's, yeah, there's no. It. Yeah, it's actually way easier. You don't have to. You don't have to like calculate the center mass of the red dragon that you're fighting to figure out if you are on opposite sides of them <laughs> to be flanking. You know, it makes way more sense. It's much better. I don't know how we got into this topic. <laughs> because I think we all like to play rogues. It, it has to do with rules mastery, I think. We were discussing rules mastery versus not knowing the rules when you run the game. <laughs> uh-huh. You know, I think there's, a, there's, you know, 
bringing it back into the main topic, I think there's a degree of I know for me, the first time I run anything that I haven't had extensive experience playing, it's almost like, you know, I glanced at the book and that was it. Yes. You know. Agree. My first attempt at running Tales from the Loop was absolutely not anywhere even close to what the rules of the game are. (laughs) But I got the tone of the setting right, which is what really mattered. Yep. You know, and then from there, it's like, okay, I can, I can, I can adjust my rules mastery as I go. If there's one thing I can highly suggest for anyone that wants to run a game without actually knowing all the rules, get the GM screen of that game. It covers a lot of the mechanics, the settings, the condition. I, I'm currently running Fantasy Age, and there are a lot of rules I still don't exactly know, but if I... I have a reference right in the back of the screen, and I kind of can get an idea of everything that I need to know, which is really nice. I have to say that I think that one thing about this specifically is that the the more comfortable you are with running games in general, the uh-huh. easier it is to separate the act of running the game from the necess- necessarily from the mechanical mastery uh-huh. of playing the game. And I think that that's a lot of what we're actually talking about is like co- being comfortable sitting there and telling a story. And sort of knowing the the points when, in general, we would engage mechanics to be able to either look that up, put it, you know, glance at a GM screen or to ask somebody who knows what's going on or whatever that is, right? Because once you've been running a bunch of games, you kind of know when those points are, right? Oh, yeah, pretty much. Right. When you're like, we came to a decision point. Clearly, this is a point where I ask for a roll or, you know, a, a mm-hmm. card draw or whatever it is in that particular game. A lot of GMing skills have very little to do with system mastery. Agree. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's it's table management of understanding how to handle your players. It's of how to move the story along, you know, how to move the game along. Pacing. How to, knowing when to ask for the roles, knowing when to you push people along, you know, it's like there's a lot more, because there's a lot of it that is universal from game to game to game that has nothing to do with how the mechanics of that actual game run. I still yeah. think it's fairly important to have some capability of understanding and referencing the rules, because otherwise, what's the point in which we're running that one particular system? That Why is don't true. we just have a single D20 and just roll that whenever we, we're unsure of what's happening? We could do that, but the point of picking a system is it allows everyone to have like a base understanding and be like, okay, so these are the rules that we are all agreeing to play by and in which makes the playing field level and fair. It is important to a degree, the mechanics and at least having the basis understanding of what you might want to know would be critical in that. I mean, I definitely agree. And I I think the thing that I think I will also say, if I can speak for all of us in this, is I don't think that any of us are necessarily advocating going out and like not reading the rules before mm-hmm. you run the game. <laughs> like, maybe don't do that. Like, do as we say, not as we do. Right? But, um, we, we've, we've, we've become cocky in our tenure of role, uh, playing games. Exactly. <laughs> like, maybe don't do that. Maybe, maybe have put in the time or effort or like don't be so snooty that you're not willing to read the rules of the game that you're now running like that's don't, a thing <laughs> don't do that but if you want to do that here's how you do it exactly yeah <laughs> and, and again I, I'll, I'll reiterate know your audience know, know your audience know the know that the people you're going to be running for 
are going to be able to handle the fact that, that you're not... Like, I will tell people up front, hey, it's my first time running this. Oh, yeah. I don't know what I'm doing, but Me we're going to have some fun. We're going to do this. Yep. Woohoo! <laughs> I'm going to take it as a challenge. I take it as a challenge. If I don't know how to run it, I want to see how long they'll, uh, the, uh, until they notice. <laughs> Yeah, I am exactly the opposite. I will I will very much upfront say, hey, I don't actually know how this works. I know exactly what we're going to do today. Like, I have everything planned out. But if you see me getting a rule wrong or something, please feel free to point it out and just jump in. We'll fix it, whatever. I'm, I tend to be very upfront with my tables about things mm -hmm. like that. Or you can turn into my personal home game group in which we basically now run most of our games with s uh, sort of a basic timeline of scenes in which we just kind of do whatever needs to happen and then move forward. But we don't usually ever roll dice anymore. So that's fun. <laughs> <laughs> that's a thing. There's this great game by Wen Rieschel that I can't wait until it's out. Cause I've been talking about this thing for years now. It's called yes. And he's got a bunch of other ones that go with it um, that he's been working on too. Like um, you, which is the murder mystery version and uh, like out which is a game about coming out, which is uh, mm, so good. But um, and, and a bunch of other ones, they're all named with three-letter words because we were making fun of him for naming things with three-letter words. Well, I mean, his, his name is Wen. I know. Wen, Wen wrote yes, out, you. There's more. I can't remember them. But they're all <laughs> fantastic, but they're all based on this like specific scene structure. But it's just a scene structure. Like It's a, it's a suggestion of a scene structure and, and, and like a story arc structure. And that's all it is. <laughs> But that's, like, the game we play the most now, so... <laughs> anyway. <laughs> and then now we've even been breaking those rules. We're really terrible. You can't believe me when I say I've played games. Because I probably, <laughs> broke, probably broke them. Probably On that did a note, lot. <laughs> we, sh we should probably start wrapping up. Are there any last thoughts you have on running without source material? <laughs> D? There are a lot of open SRDs or like games that are released online. You don't have to be always playing those like big name games and getting those $60 books. There's a lot of free stuff. If it's okay for me to self plug here on my website, I've just sourced, I think like 30, 40 free games and like their links on the online. So there's that. Like you don't have to play with uh, like er what everyone's playing. There's a lot out there. One last thing I was going to say, and then we'll get to Senda and any last thoughts from her. A lot of the games we've talked about running without the, the books are big games like D&D, &D, Pathfinder, that type of thing. And don't feel like you need to use or you can limit what your players have available as source material. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Be mindful of that. Be careful of that. Because you don't need to let everyone use every single piece of material that's out there. You can't limit mm -hmm. what is available. But you... Ange, all of the splat books. <laughs> I know, all I know, and I love, I love the splat books, <laughs> but they're dangerous. They're very dangerous. <laughs> they're dangerous even if you know all the rules. <laughs> and Senda, any last thoughts from you? Yeah, um, I have, I have just kind of two thoughts. The first one of which is, and we kind of touched on this. The more comfortable you are with the kind of system that it is, the easier it is to jump into something that you don't necessarily know super specifically, mm -hmm. right? So we did a lot of like D20. So if you know D20, you're pretty good at D20, like the basics, right? Or if you know Powered mm -hmm. by the Apocalypse, 
it's much easier to pick up another Powered by the Apocalypse game in general. They're not all the same, right? But they're like, not all the same. They have some things that are similar from game to game to game. So it's a lot easier to take the knowledge that you already have from running something like it and apply it. And that's just kind of like, it's a useful skill to have because it means you can apply the knowledge you've got from running previous games to something you may not be as familiar with. And then to, to, to Dee's point, one of the other things that I will say is not all, but many of the free games on the internet are much, much shorter. And so you could also be looking at games if you're like, I do not have time to read this textbook, but I know I want to run a game on Sunday. That's tomorrow. Cool. There's all sorts of stuff out there that's far shorter than that that will uh-huh. get you through a one shot fantastically. So like if you think about lasers and feelings or like love and justice, that is something that you're going to be able to read in 15 minutes and you will be able to sit down at the table. You will know all the rules and you will run it. Right. So there's a second part, which is, um, you know, think about why, what is my purpose in running this game that I don't know the rules to? And could I just maybe be running something else that I could just get all the rules to in the amount of time that I have available to me? Mm -hmm. Because those options are definitely out there. Right. Yep. Cool. I think that's my, uh, that's my thought on that. So uh, handing it back to you. I think we can we can start getting out of here. This show is funded by the Gnome Stew Patreon. You too can become a Patreon bagger by following the Patreon link on the Gnome Stew website to the Gnome Stew Patreon. This ad is brought to you by Memoradol, the new memory enhancing supplement for your life when you absolutely must have eidetic memory for at least a little while. Warning, the elderly, children, and anyone under the age of 65 should avoid prolonged exposure to Memoradol. Some users experience hyperspace transference with Memoradol. Do not taunt Memoradol. If you are enjoying the Gnomecast, you probably... <laughs> sorry i made you lose it i love the elderly children part. it was supposed to be the elderly elderly, comma children children. and i just it's elderly children um i think of the characters from akira oh man yes if you're enjoying the gnome cast you'll probably like many of the other mr misdirected mark word scramble shows here's one to check out the Lounge. Doc finds the best, the brightest, the most fun game designers and sits down to have a cool chat with them. You never know what conversation is going to come up in The Lounge. You can find all of us at GnomeStew.com, at GnomeStew on Twitter, and GnomeStew on Facebook. D, where else can we find you on the internet? Twitter, DiceQGM, and let, I'm going to put a link of, um, that, oh, that, of those SRDs in the show notes. Mm-hmm. And we'll get those in the show notes. And Senda, where can we find you on the internet? Well, you can find me in many, many places. You can listen to me talk more on Pandas Talking Games, which is on Twitter at Pandas Talk Games. You can also hear me play games on She's a Super Geek, which is at SAS Geek Podcast. Or you can follow me specifically, the unspellable Twitter handle at I D E L L A M I T H L Y N N D. That is I. Della Mifland. What? <laughs> you haven't been through this with me before, Dee, and I'm sorry. <laughs> oh my he is God. new. She it's gets to thing. experience it. <laughs> it's it's at this point a running joke because it's um unspellable and it's all good. It's it's this is what happens when you play an elf rogue and you um That's fair. Yeah, and then you use a name generator and then you're like, oh, I'll just make a Twitter account for this character. That'll be great. And then that like morphs into your personal Twitter account that you keep forever and can never fix the name on because everyone will lose track of you when you disappear from changing your name. So anyway, (laughs) that's the story. 
<laughs> and you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at orikes13, O-R-I-K-E-S-13. Um, and though, but every time I warn you, Instagram is mostly just pictures of my cats. They're cute, though. They are cute. I, I, I think cat. they're highly cute. Except for the fact that Tamsin was pushing open my door with a shoe and a twist tie that she was playing with as we were recording, and I couldn't do anything about it. <laughs> <sighs> anyway, do you guys think we avoided the stew this week? Uh, yeah, probably. I still don't get why it's bad. The stew? <laughs> I mean, there's a trap door in the bottom, so we could get out anyway. Mm. Yeah. We've we've got our we've we've got our roots out. But it is Don't a little bit. John, though. It is a little bit out of the out of the bottom of the stew pot directly into the fire. That part's not so good. Ah, that's pretty bad. <laughs> Gnomecast is hosted by Misdirected Mark Productions, the media arm of Encoded Designs. Now Rob's going to have outtakes. It's my fault. Yay. Sorry. Rob Sorry, can Rob. do what he likes with this. Nope. <laughs>